835. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Well, what if you gave an election and very few people turned out to vote? That is precisely what happened yesterday. A lot of stuff to talk about on today's program. Before we get started, a couple housekeeping matters. Two weeks from tonight, Insight 2019 at the Country Springs Hotel. 2019, I'm ahead of myself. 2017 at the Country Springs Hotel. We have a, a great list of guests, and we continue to add to them on a daily basis. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do with Insight this year is kind of get us back a little bit to our roots about about where we were when, when Insight started. So our headliner of his course is Governor Walker. He will be there. It's a chance for you to hear him up close and personal. And we're going to talk about, like again, current events and issues of the day, but also a little bit about uh, the governor's background and experiences over the last few years. We're going to be joined by three justices of the state Supreme Court, Annette Ziegler, who was reelected running unopposed to a second 10-year term yesterday. In addition, Justice Rebecca Bradley, who was elected after a very contentious race a year ago, and the newest member of the state Supreme Court, Justice Dan Kelly, who will be on the ballot next April. So all three of those folks will be joining us. We're going to be joined by Joe Bartolotta of the Bartolotta Restaurant Empire. I I thought I was really struck by the the closing of Carl Roche's um, restaurant that had been a Milwaukee institution since, what, like 1904 or something. And, And when you think about all the restaurants that come and go. As a matter of fact, we talked about that in the 1130 segment of the program yesterday. When you think about all the restaurants that come and go over the years, you look at, at, at the formula that the Bartolottas have found for success. And we're going to talk to uh, Joe about that. So that should be interesting. In addition, we're also going to be joined by Bob Babish and Don Smiley. It's the 50th anniversary of Summerfest this year. But I want to talk about not just the current Summerfest, not just who's going to appear on the Miller Light stage, but, but rather, you know, what it takes, what goes into putting on Summerfest and then some of the war stories from the years. And um, our, our newest additions, we had announced earlier that I was going to be joined by Voice of the Packers, Wayne Larravee. I am very pleased that in addition to Wayne, his broadcast partner, Larry McCarron, is going to be with us. So a week before the NFL draft, if you are a Packers fan, this is going to be your opportunity to see Wayne and Larry up close and personal uh, we're going to be talking about the Packers draft, but also you want to talk about some guys that have some interesting backstories themselves. It is both Wayne and Larry, so they'll be on the stage as well. Insight 2017, two months from, two months, two weeks from today at the Country Springs Hotel, 630. Go to WTMJ.com and you can make arrangements to buy tickets, and I hope to see you there. In addition, if you were not listening yesterday, shame on you. If you were not listening yesterday, you missed the rollout of our, our new contest, Follow the Brewers. And this is courtesy of our friends West Bend, the Silver Lining, and Noodles and Company. Here's what we're going to be doing every day for the next few weeks at approximately 910. Might be 908, might be 912, might be 910, but be listening approximately 910. And if you are the designated caller, you will be our daily winner. You will win a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play at Miller Park. Uh, this week, it's a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the, the Cardinals at Miller Park. But but it's, it's even cooler than that. So that is cool. You win a four-pack of tickets. That's great. On Friday, we will take all of our daily qualifiers from the week. And we will randomly draw one name from the list of qualifiers. That person, we're going to send them on the road to follow the Brewers. This week, um, the daily, this week, our, our grand prize winner is going to get a chance to uh, go to Pittsburgh to see the Brewers play the Pittsburgh Pirates. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. We are going to do it. Like I say, uh, your chance to win comes around approximately 9, 10, 
every day of the, every weekday for the next few weeks. So be listening for your chance to follow the Brewers. And again, I want to say a real special thank you to the folks at Noodles and Company in West Bend, the silver lining for putting this together. We start off today's program like we start off all programs with three big things. That is things that I think you need to know as you go through your day. Big thing number one, election results. I don't know that there were too many surprises. Tony Evers overwhelmingly wins re-election as state school superintendent. I thought Lowell Holtz was a pretty good candidate, but the problem was really didn't have a lot of money to mount a campaign. And in a low turnout election like this, what happens is you have some of the special interests that are really able to dominate. The other reality of the state superintendent of schools job is it's pretty much of a nothing job right now. I mean, the, the reality is Republicans in the legislature and the governor's uh, and the governor's mansion make school policy. So, I mean, while I understand that the state school superintendent makes a bunch of money, um, it, it's really, I think, in many respects, it's kind of a figurehead role. And you you go around and you open eighth, you know new um, grade schools and things like that, and that that's fine. But I, I think um, one of the things that hampered Lowell Holtz is the fact that. From the perspective of people, you know, wanting to invest in the race and, and help him, you know, get elected, not a lot of people necessarily saw this as something as a position that makes a lot of difference. So Tony Evers is reelected to another four-year term, but I think it, again, for many respects, it's, it's largely irrelevant. Voters in Milwaukee County overwhelmingly reject the advice of the Journal Sentinel editorial board, reject the advice of County Executive Chris Abley, and say no to a $60 wheel tax. And they don't just say no. They overwhelmingly say no. It was about 72 to 28 percent voters saying, no, we do not want to increase our taxes. Here's, of course, what happened. You, you pay, what, $75 a year to register your automobile with the state. In the city of Milwaukee, you pay an extra $20 wheel tax for the privilege of having your car in the city of Milwaukee. The county board, with the blessing of the county executive, just imposed a new $30 wheel tax for county residents. So if you happen to live in the city of Milwaukee, which is, of course, also in Milwaukee County, you now pay $125 a year for the privilege of having your vehicle in Milwaukee, the city of, and the county of, $125. And that is each vehicle. So assuming that you and your spouse each have one, you know, you're talking about $250. If you have a couple kids, like teenage kids, so you've got a third car, well, that's, you know, another $155. That, that's another $125. County Executive Chris Abley, not happy with a $30 wheel tax, has been pushing to have that wheel tax doubled, to have it go up to $60. Voters in Milwaukee County overwhelmingly said no, 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 no. Now, the problem with this is, of course, it is just an advisory referendum. So Abley has already indicated that regardless of the results of the advisory referendum, he is going to continue to push for the $60 wheel tax. So now the question becomes whether the Milwaukee County Board, having been told no, about as definitively as possible to raising the wheel tax from $30 to $60, whether they will listen to the voters or whether they will decide to blast ahead in the face of this kind of overwhelmingly re- overwhelming rejection and go ahead and impose a wheel tax. If they decide to proceed after this referendum has gone down 72 to 28 percent, I think this may very well set the stage. I was around 
I was I was around when you had the pension scandal and you had the recall movements. If the Milwaukee County Board were to decide to continue to go ahead in the face of these referendum results and push for doubling the wheel tax, I think it is possible, just possible, that you could see a return to 2001, 2002, um, the whole pension scandal controversy. And what's that word we used to throw around a lot? Recalls. We will see. All right. The other stories, school spending referendums. In Verona, out in Dane County, voters overwhelmingly approved one of the largest, largest school spending referendums in state history, 162 million dollars closer to home voters in grafton approved a referendum of about 40 million dollars up in green bay voters approved a referendum um, of 68.6 million dollars in school spending what struck me about a lot of these votes and i was trying to make the point earlier about the one in green bay these almost nobody voted it's just amazing in green bay for example the green bay school district about 16,000 votes were cast. Now, the school spending referendum passed overwhelmingly, but essentially just a little bit more than 10,000 voters were able to make the decision to raise the property taxes of everybody who lives in the Green Bay School District to pay for this $68.5 million spending addition. It tells you why elections matter, and it tells you, I think, in many respects, why proponents of these spending elections, of these of these proposals, decide to either choose spring elections or choose to have um, some of these referendums on some of the non-election, the non-regularly scheduled election days in order to try to get this through. But um, those spending referendums went through. Heartland Arrowhead, voters say no. Burlington, voters say no. And significantly, West Dallas, West Milwaukee, which is one of the most poorly managed school districts in the state, they blew through reserves of like 17 million and were asking the voters to give them more dough in order to make up for their mistakes. Voters end up saying no way. And of course, predictably, the school superintendent is now saying, well, if we didn't get this, we might be forced to cut programs like art and music. Well, okay. Maybe what you need to do really is to shelve and get rid of some of the deadwood, including some of the people that were responsible for getting you in the financial hole in the first place. Just saying. All right. Big thing number two, Susan Rice in trouble saying it wasn't me. We'll discuss. It's 846 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 849, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Donald Trump blames the Democrats and the GOP's Freedom Caucus for the demise of the recent health care bill. Is there anything that the president can do to get it done at this point? Steve Scafidi thinks there's one thing he can do. He'll reveal it today at 135 during Scafidi and Bill Stett. We'll actually talk about the new health care proposal later on today. My advice to Republicans would be go carefully because the way I understand it, it might be a lot worse on one important in one important area than Anything that's been out there before, and we will talk about that. All right, big thing number two. Susan Rice, former ambassador to the United Nations, former national security advisor to President Obama. Susan Rice is the one that the administration, for example, trotted out when um, after the attack on the consulate in Libya. They were still trying to maintain that this it wasn't a terrorist attack. It was response. It was in response to an anti-Muslim video. She was the one that they trotted out to to do that. For example, um, she has been identified as somebody involved in unmasking the identity of Trump 
associates who turned up on wiretaps. As I explained yesterday, um, I, I what what ended up what I think has happened here is the NSA, the National Security Administration, you know, has as a regular policy of of wiretapping Russian diplomats or Russian businessmen. So they're listening in on their phone calls. When those people who are the subject of wiretaps make calls to other people, the people on the other end of the line, they are going to be incidentally caught up in the in the wiretap, right? Because you're going to be listening into the phone of the Russian diplomat. So then, you know, you hear him call somebody it's the person on the other end of the line that incidentally gets caught up in this. The laws are very clear that when somebody is on the other end of the line, gets caught up in these intercepts, their identities are not, not, not to be made public. They are supposed to be, quote unquote, masked in all the reports that are generated because they've done nothing wrong, unless that there is evidence that there's some national security risk or they're committing a crime or something like that. But the mere fact that, you know, somebody who's being wiretapped by the NSA has called and talked to somebody else, that is not supposed to be made public, the identity of that person. Now, I think all along it's been kind of clear that the NSA was listening to some of these Russians and that some people associated with the Trump transition team, you know, might have been having routine conversation. Nobody's suggesting there's anything criminal going on here, anything, any laws that were broken. They were just having um, incidental contacts or incidental talks. Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor, a couple weeks ago, she publicly said, I was not involved in any unmasking. Unmasking is requesting that the names be made public. So in these various reports of the calls, instead of the name being blacked out, it is it is it is put in there and then it is disseminated. These reports go to various people in Congress and then, you know, once they get the names get in the reports, you know, everybody and their brother has access to them, and that's why they get leaked into the, the public. So Susan Rice, two weeks ago, said, I, I was not involved in any sort of unmasking at all. She has now changed her tune. She is now acknowledging that she may, in fact, have requested that certain names now be unmasked and included in the reports, which were then disseminated to members of Congress. She is now, though, denying that there was any political motivation in this. Oh, I wasn't politically motivated when when I did this. I just thought it was important to kind of understand context, and I didn't leak them myself. That might be true, but once you put the names in the reports— Well, then they get disseminated to all sorts of people, and once they have access to that, somebody else may very well leak it, and I think it is foreseeable that you knew that would happen. So Susan Rice is saying, I'm just shocked. I'm shocked that anybody would suggest that I would have been politically motivated in having the names of Trump transition people unmasked in the reports and then having those reports sent to various members of Congress. I'm just stunned that anybody would suggest this was politically motivated. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry, I am not buying a word of what this woman is saying, and I think there does need to be a congressional investigation as to how many names she directed to be unmasked, why she did that, and what her real purpose was. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Mainstream media kind of circling the wagon, saying, how can anybody challenge Susan Rice? I think there's a lot of smoke here and there might be some fire. We talk about it next.
857, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Brian Mequon. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Okay, are you buying what Susan Rice is selling? Well, help me. I, I'm a simple guy. I can't conceive of any other reason other than it being a political reason. Could there be one? I, I, you know, Brian, I, I, I'm with you. You know, she said, "Well, this, this is just in the course of my duties." You know, I, I will do this occasionally, and I just, for some reason, I thought it was important that all these Trump aides, you know, we, we, we have their names included in the reports. Yeah, I'm with you. If, if this was not politically motivated, what would her motivation have been? Has yeah. anybody asked her? Well, that's that is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. No, thanks for the call. That's why, matter of fact, on our text line, um, Rice said the act wasn't political. Really? Okay, Ms. Rice, maybe you need to testify under oath, and that is exactly what the House Intelligence Committee is looking at. Look, I I understand. Lyndon Johnson used to say, "Don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining." In my opinion, that is precisely what Susan Rice I- is doing. To, I don't know how you're ever going to prove this. I, I I don't. But first of all, a couple weeks ago, she says, I wasn't involved in unmasking any of these names. Now, well, okay, maybe I was involved in unmasking, but it, but it, wasn't, it wasn't politically motivated at all, and I didn't leak it. Well, okay, I'm not saying that she leaked it, but the point is, you know that there are a lot of leakers in Washington, D.C., and we've seen that over the course of the last couple years, and I think you know that once those names get included in those reports, and then you send the reports out to God in the world, you have a pretty good idea that those names are going to become public. Let's see, Rich in West Dallas on our text line says, uh, my understanding is that she requested they be unmasked and that the NSA approved it. If they didn't feel she had a valid reason for the request, they could have said no. Yeah, but when you're the national security advisor, you pretty much follow instructions. Dan texts, Susan Rice, Rice reminds me of the John Lovitz pathological liar character from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that's the ticket. After Benghazi and Bergdahl, yeah, she was the one that went out and said that essentially Bergdahl was a prisoner of war, kind of implying that he was an American hero. Um, Rice has zero credibility. She needs to testify under oath, and I think it um, be interesting to have her answer questions, and I think that's probably going to happen. It is 8.59, coming up in just a few minutes. Follow the Brewers, and big thing number three, why, oh, why do we keep treating juvenile criminals with kid gloves? Stick around. 916, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Get to know the people behind the headlines at Insight 2017, hosted by me. It's at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee two weeks from tonight. I'm going to sit down with longtime radio team of the Green Bay Packers, Wayne Larravee. We'd announced Wayne's appearance before, and he's going to be joined by his partner. It's Superman and Batman. It's Scafidi and Billstead. It's Thelma and Louise. No, it's Wayne Larravee and Larry McCarran. They're going to join me less than a week before the 2017 NFL Draft. Get the inside scoop on the Packers' needs. Reinforcements for Aaron Rodgers and how the team plans to get back to the NFC Championship game. Also, we're going to talk to Wayne and Larry about their backstory. Stories. How did Wayne? How did Wayne get to Green Bay? And he's trust me. I mean, if you have a chance to listen to Wayne Larrabee tell some stories about his background, it is worth the price of admission. Uh, the Rock is the same way. There are only 14 days left until Insight 2017. Get your tickets online. Check out the full guest list at wtmj.com. Hope to see you there. All right. It, it's just one of the things that. I think kills a community is the fact that people believe the community is unsafe. And one of the things that has been going on in Milwaukee County is more and more people are coming to the conclusion that it is unsafe. 
And that's, that is affecting how we deal with things. You know, we talked a week or two ago about how people, you know, now there's certain roads you just don't drive on. And, and, and at some point in time, you get to a point because you're afraid that your car is going to be stolen or you're going to be carjacked or whatever. At some point in time, when, when people start simply saying, not just people from the suburbs who say, hey, I, I don't want to come into Milwaukee anymore, but people who live in Milwaukee say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I, I'm tired of not being able, if you live on the northwest side, I'm not being able, to, I'm tired of, I go away from work to work for the day and I come back and my home is broken into. Or I go on vacation for a, a three-day weekend and I come back and my home is broken into. Or we've got, you know, the cars that are being stolen right or left. I'm afraid that I'm going to be parked at a stop sign and what's going to happen is somebody's going to bang into to me and I'm going to get out and look at the uh, look at the damage and then they're going to steal my car. At some point in time, people say enough is enough and they decide to leave. And so the only people who don't leave are either the folks who, who just don't have the ability to do that, so they're trapped or the criminal element. Now, one of the things that that we don't like to confront, but the cops will tell you, is actually most people are good law-abiding citizens. The problem is you have a certain criminal underclass. It is the same people over and over and over and over again who commit crimes. You talk to cops and they'll tell you, we keep catching these people and we turn around and they're back out on the street. Look at... Look at the city building inspector that was was murdered, you know, what, two weeks ago? I mean, look at the people who allegedly did that. You've got somebody who's out on a $500 signature bond for, for car theft. And my guess is, you know, he has a lengthy juvenile record as well, but a $500 signature bond. Whenever we see these cases... Almost always, you see that it's not their first time at the rodeo. They've been doing it over and over again. And because juvenile records are sealed, a lot of times we really don't know how bad the record really is. Well, this is the latest example of it, and both Fox 6 and Bob Donovan called attention to it. There is a 15-year-old juvenile who, at the age of 15, is on his way, if not already, to the point of becoming a career criminal. Um, apparently, this 15-year-old juvenile, his fingerprints have been found on not one, not two, not five, not ten, 22 stolen cars. 22 stolen cars. His fingerprints have been found on them. He is described as one of the most prolific car thieves in Milwaukee County, even though he is not old enough to drive. So here's the story. Apparently what happens, there's this guy who um, last summer, last July, working as a delivery man, you know, he goes to get a water bottle from his truck and the car starts moving. Guy says, my car starts rolling. I'm like, what's going on? Um, When I ran after it, um, apparently a guy ran out to the front, to the front there. He wedged in between me and my car and the van, and he stopped it. He's going to hurt me, the guy said. Well, it turns out to be it's this 15-year-old that is out there stealing cars. So you have this 15-year-old that has been stealing cars. In eight, He has been through the juvenile system on multiple occasions. In July of 2015, guy goes, the kid is sent to a group home. He goes AWOL from his group home, walks away. A month later, more stolen car charges. Over the summer, he goes missing again. 
only to be arrested in September in another set of stolen car cases. So he's been through the juvenile justice system. We put him in the group home. We put him here. We put him there. He walks away from the things. Nobody does anything. And what does he do? He steals cars. 22 stolen cars. At a hearing on Friday, a relative says, well, the, the teenager was raised by his grandmother, got off track after his death, her death in 2015. The lawyer says he's an immature, impulsive-minded kid. Okay, he's immature and impulsive. He's got the uh, impulse control of a fruit fly, I assume is what that means. And so, hey, he's immature, so what does he do? He steals other people's cars over and over and over and over again. The lawyer says, well, it would be a shame to take a 15-year-old, even in an extreme case like this, and just willy-nilly throw them into the adult system. Right. Well, the prosecutors, fed up with the juvenile system, the court system's inability to deal with this punk, try to wave him into adult court. And last week, Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Gwendolyn Connolly, going along with the recommendation of the social workers and the probation department agrees and says we're 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 not going to waive him into adult court no 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 we we have other things in the juvenile court system that we can do with this kid who has stolen 22 cars at least who has been through the system over and over again and continues to steal cars we are going to again treat him with kid gloves and we are going to keep him in the juvenile system and effectively my opinion continue to coddle him well alder bob alderman bob donovan and alderman mark borkowski both say enough is enough i mean donovan comes out yesterday and this is what his statement says last friday prosecutors sought to waive a 15 year old milwaukee boy into adult court because he simply cannot seem to stop stealing vehicles despite serious juvenile court proceedings against him. Prosecutors say the boy's fingerprints have shown up on 22 stolen cars, nearly two dozen vehicles. And now I have received some shocking and quite disturbing video, I saw the video, showing the teen waving a handgun and flashing gang shines. In my opinion, this video, which you can view by going to my city Facebook page, casts strong doubt about whether this teen is fit for any type of reform or rehabilitation in our juvenile, broken juvenile justice system. A veteran Milwaukee police officer viewed the clip called it scary. News reports indicate the boy has gone missing from authorities twice in recent years, only to be later linked to more car thefts. On Friday, Judge Gwendolyn Connolly flatly refused to waive the teen into adult court, saying she did not see clear and convincing evidence that it was necessary. She said this after watching the very same video. Judge Connolly should ask a few of the victims whether there's any clear and or convincing evidence to send the young criminal into adult court where he may finally learn his lesson. What about the safety of the community, Judge Connolly? That's Bob Donovan writing. She should also explain to us how she is sure the gun he was holding in the video won't be used in a robbery or killing. I don't know Judge Connolly, and I don't believe we've ever met. I know her job is a challenging one, but I say with all due respect, I believe she owes an explanation to the city citizens of Milwaukee. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When are we going to finally say enough is enough? And if it means changing the juvenile laws to take this decision more out of the hands of judges, maybe we end up needing to do that. But 22 car thefts by the age of 15 Is there any reason in God's green earth that we should continue to treat a prolific car thief who is immature and prone to impulsive behavior 
Is there any reason why we should continue to treat them with the kid gloves of the juvenile court system? 414-799-1620. When is enough going to be enough? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 925 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 927 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let me tell you the scary thing about this case with the 15-year-old who stole in 22 cars. Stuff like this, maybe not this extreme, but stuff like this goes on on an almost daily basis in the juvenile courts. We just don't find out about it because the proceedings are sealed. In this case, the prosecutors were at least trying to get the car thief into adult court, so there's at least some record of this. But this is the type of stuff that goes on on a daily basis with Milwaukee County Circuit Court judges. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Vincent. I don't understand what ju- judge, what this judge... Uh, Gwendolyn Connolly, that's her Gwendolyn name. Gwendolyn Connolly uh, is doing. When, what does what habitual criminal, when, <laughs> do, when does that come into play? After the 22nd car is stolen? After the 50th car is stolen? Right, right. Yeah, this isn't... Look, I understand if you've got a 15-year-old that goes out and steals a car and it's his first time at the rodeo, I understand you want to try alternatives. But in this case, apparently this kid has been stealing cars for years. They put him in a group home, he walks away and steals more cars. They catch him. They send him into some other sort of restrictive thing. He gets out and steals more cars. At some point in time, don't we need to realize that that's what this kid is? He is a car thief, and it's time to have some consequences and punish him. And one of the problems is we don't put the mics in front of these judges' faces when one of these individuals who have continually preyed upon a community right. goes out there and kills somebody. And so the fact is they just wash their hands of this whole thing. And, 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 and we are reaping the results of all this, right. continuing letting these individuals back out in the street until they, until they end up hurting somebody. And, 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 and nobody says, goes back to that judge and says, hey, you, could, you had an opportunity right. to put this individual away. away right. And they say, well, it's, it's not my – and then they'll, they'll say, well, it, it's, it's not my fault. I made the best decision I, I could at the time. Well, okay. And, of course, as I've been carrying on about Vincent, the problem is once you get elected or appointed to Milwaukee Circuit Court or circuit courts in general, you never have any opponents. So you can be as you can make as many ridiculous decisions as possible, and you're not going to be challenged. You're not going to be held accountable. And this is the type of thing we get. 22 car th- 22 colon stolen cars at least, and those are just the ones that they found because they got his fingerprints on them. Who knows how many there might really be? And we're going to we're gonna treat him as a juvenile. It, He's not redeemed. This individual, I don't see which uh, Judge County sees in this guy's eyes or, or whatever, but he's not redeemable. Well, well, at, at one point, does she, does she see that or other judges? Well, and then, I mean, thanks to Colvin. And again, I watched the video of, of this kid, and, and he, they're, they're waving guns around, for goodness sakes. I mean, is somebody really going to have to die for this? Uh, Lori writes, the video is disgusting and frightening, and it infuriates me that I'm, and that I'm frightened by children. Plus, what is the deal with him sucking his thumb? Yeah, um, you are too young for a firearm. Uh, Mary Tosa writes, the age of reasoning is seven years old. This 15-year-old knows right from wrong. Carolyn Menominee Falls says, who is the judge in this case? Her name is Gwendolyn Connolly. Let's put the child in the judge's custody. Yeah, um, you know, that's, that's a different story as well. I mean, again, this is one of these aggravating things that, you know, time and time again, I understand you want to give people a second and a third chance. I understand that we want to go soft on the juveniles because we want to try to redeem them and see if we can rehabilitate them. But at some point in time, what about protecting the rest of us from the criminals that are out there, whether they're 13 or 35? 
936, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers continue their season opening series at Miller Park against the Rockies. Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering will begin our coverage of Game 3 tonight at 635, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. I was still chuckling. Our opening day broadcast, and again, I hope if my bosses are listening, turn down the radio, because that, that opening day show, it's just the opportunity to do that is one of the reasons why I often say that I do this job for free if I could figure out a way to live on it. But um, the, the the 25 minutes that Euchre and Atanasio and I spent together, I mean, I felt like I was the MC at a comedy act. I mean, it was just, Euchre is just hysterical, and, you know, Mark Atanasio is a great guy, and just watching the two of them, you know, bounce stuff back and forth and, you know, listen to Euchre talk about an interesting career ranging from, you Tonight show appearances to the um, the old Miller Light ads. Do you remember those Honda? Are you too young for that? I see. I think you know that the taste grade is less filling, and they they do Billy Martin. You know all the the old athletes and stuff, Dick Butkus and Euchre and stuff. I still think they should bring those back. I just I think they they would speak to a new generation of Miller Light drinkers. And I, if I were one of the advertising people, I'd be thinking strongly about that. But it was just, uh, I just had a lot of fun. And Euchre is just a great guy. Euchre and Jeff Levering again, begin our coverage game three tonight at 635. All right. What, a week or two ago, uh, Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare go down in flames when you have a, a group of 25 or 30 conservative Republicans, the so-called cons- Freedom Caucus, who decide that they can't vote for the reform that is on the table because it doesn't, in their opinion, go far enough. It's a big blow to the president, who was personally lobbying people to vote for it. It's a big blow to Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, who was kind of the architect of this, this, new, this, this new plan. And it led to one headline after another about how, well, is the Trump presidency off to a rocky start or look that you can't get this done? And what does it say for the agenda? And at the time, um, at least the president was saying, okay, health care reform is off the table for at least a while. Now, that might be bad public policy to an extent because I believe that Obamacare is unsustainable. I, I just think – Part of the coverage, the the media coverage of the Republican plan versus the current Obamacare plan, I thought that was just grossly unfair because Obamacare as it exists now isn't going to exist that way in two years. I firmly believe that because you have more and more insurers who are not participating in these exchanges. They're saying we're not making any money. We are dropping out. And so as a result, people who are stuck in these exchanges, you're you're finding your choices to be extremely limited. And I believe that the costs are going to continue to go up and up. Up. And unless unless the government continues to increase subsidies, you're going to find people are going to be paying dramatically more with fewer options, fewer choices of doctors and all that. So I believe Obamacare is going to collapse. So I, I do think it is important to do something. But at the same time, you want to say at some point in time, I think you say, hey, wait a second. You know, we're taking all the political hits here. Democrats are on board with on are not on board with any of this. And we're getting beaten up politically. Maybe you just kind of play it out for a little bit and you say, OK, let's see what's going to happen. And then, you know, once Obamacare starts to implode like it inev- like it already is, you know, maybe there will be some urgency and you'll have some Democrats who will decide, OK, we, we've got to we've got to get on board with this. That is one strategy. The other strategy is to come back with another plan to try to appeal to the hardcore conservatives, the ones that shot this down in the first place, to try to get their votes. And that apparently is, is what's going on now. All right. I understand that 
I might be swimming upstream against, you know, Republican orthodoxy. But but here's what I want to point. From what I understand about this new proposal that's floating around, I think Republicans need to tread very, very carefully. One of the things that I think, and here is why, and then we're going to discuss it. One of the things that I think all of us agreed upon in the debate that led to Obamacare was that the health care system needs to look at reforming certain things, including the way pre-existing conditions are covered. What about the person who's you know, had insurance for most of their life through their employer, loses their job, you know, and, and they've, got, they've got diabetes, or they've got you know, a heart problem, or more significantly, what, let's say you, you lose your job and you, know, you, you come down with this diagnosis of, uh, of a catastrophic illness, cancer, something like that. Well, you need, I think, to have the ability to be able to continue to get coverage somewhere for the what they call the pre-existing condition, the diabetes, the heart disease, the you know the, the cancer or or whatever. And that is one of the things that Obamacare of course did. Obamacare guaranteed that you know you would be subject to in, you would be subject to insurance. Now the way it did it is, is one of the things that's generating a lot of the costs because right now the penalty for not having insurance is so small that a lot of people make the decision to go uninsured knowing that if they get sick they're going to be able to enroll in Obamacare uh, depending on the time of the year and they're automatically going to be able to get coverage so that has been a problem but here's here's what the proposal is that's moving now and and this is what they are doing to try to get votes of conservative members first of all they are saying that that states would have the option to jettison, get rid of two major parts of the Obamacare insurance regulations. First of all, states could decide to opt out of provisions that require insurers to cover a standard minimum package of benefits known as essential health benefits. These are the ones that say, you know, any insurance policy, you have to offer this and that and the other thing. It has to be included. This would give states the right to opt out of that, right? I don't have a problem with that aspect of it. You know, if a state decides, hey, look, because we want to get more insurers that want to participate, we want to give them the right to opt out of certain of these things, I don't have an issue with that. I do have an issue with the second part of this. That is, the new legislation would give states the right to decide to do away with a rule that requires insurance companies to charge the same price to everyone who is the same age. That's a provision called community rating. So right now under Obamacare, you know, you, you know all 59-year-old men have to be charged the, the same price. Now you might say, well, Jeff, I don't, I don't understand that. What, what's a, what, why is that a big deal? You know, what, is it, you know, what, what, what difference does it make if you know, you've got a 59-year-old who's healthy versus a 59-year-old who's got a bad health record? Why shouldn't you be able to charge more? Well, here's, here's, here is the problem. If, if you allow insurers to charge different prices for people in the same age gap, that, I think, as a practical matter, makes the requirement that you cover pre-existing conditions meaningless. So, so follow me on, on this. 
Um, under the law, you would still, an insurer would not be able to deny somebody coverage if you had a history of illness. But without this community rating, what they say is, you know, all 59-year-olds have to pay the same thing, health plans would be free to charge people as much as they wanted. So let's say you've got a 59-year-old guy who's got a history of diabetes, right? That person would have to, could theoretically be charged more. The insurance company could charge whatever they wanted for that. And so, yes, they've got to offer coverage for the diabetes, but they could set a rate that was so high that somebody couldn't afford to buy the policy. Or, or let's take the, the more significant example. Let's say you've got that catastrophic diagnosis. You, you're, you're a woman with 59-year-old woman, in my example, with breast cancer. Okay, you've you've lost your job, so now you're on the Obamacare exchange right now. Well, yes, insurers under this plan, the way I understand it, would still have to offer you insurance. You've got breast cancer. You've got stage four breast cancer. Yes, we still have to offer you insurance, but we're free to charge you what we want to charge you. So essentially, you know, let's say they decide to charge you all right ten thousand dollars a month or something like that, and you can't afford it. So yeah, you'd have the pre-existing coverage. You'd still be required to offer it, but without that price control, you essentially make it meaningless. All right, it's the best way I can explain it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is important to reform. Obamacare. I think Obamacare will collapse. But the one aspect of the health care system that we need to work out and we need to guarantee is that people with pre-existing coverage, pre-existing conditions, particularly people with pre-existing conditions who have been covered by insurance over the years, still be allowed to maintain their insurance. And I am concerned, the way I understand this proposal, whether or not that's going to happen. It's kind of like when Obama said, you know, if you like your plan, you can keep it. If you like your doctor, you can keep him or her. That turned out to be not true. As a practical matter, this proposal looks to me like one where we say, well, you don't have to worry. If you've got a pre-existing condition, you're still going to be eligible for coverage. Yes, but if the insurers can charge you whatever they want, well, okay, yeah, you can get insurance, but it's only if you're in a position to pay thousands of dollars a month. Okay, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How important is pre-existing co- coverage for pre-existing conditions? And in any health care reform, in any repeal and replace Obamacare, I guess I think that one of the keys has to be the ability of people, particularly people who have been insured in the past, the ability for them to be able to continue their insurance irrespective of their pre-existing conditions. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I think Republicans need to be really, really careful in passing legislation to try to get some certain hardcore conservative votes for fear that you're really going to lose a lot of the general public if they understand the way this is going to work is effectively to say, yeah, pre-existing conditions are covered, but, all right, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 947, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Nine fifty one, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I mean, look, I, I think 
I, I think healthcare reform is a priority, but I think it needs to be done right. And I understand you want to appease, in order to get some votes, you want to appease some of the most conservative members of of Congress. And that's okay with me too. But I think you need to be careful when it comes to what you're doing with pre-existing condition coverage, because everybody, even in the Obamacare debate, Republicans and Democrats realize that that's an important component. And I am concerned that what they're doing now to try to appeal to the conservatives might might have the effect of really undermining pre-existing condition coverage. And if that's the case, it's going to cost a lot of people their seats, you know, two years from now. Tom in Watertown. Tom, you're on 620 WTMJ. Morning, Jeff. Hi, Tom. Here's what I would say is that these congressmen, I'll tell you what, they should start trying out their plans themselves for one to two years with their families, see how they like it. If it works out okay, come back and say, yeah, this plan worked great. (laughs) Right. If it didn't work out good... Come back and try over again, because I'll tell you what, what they're trying to jam down our throats right now is not going to work. It's just not going to work. Well, and I'm right. And I'm concerned that just like, you know, when 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 Obamacare was passed in 2010, the argument was, well, we we have to pass it to know what's in it. (laughs) And then we found out about a lot of what's in it. I'm concerned that there's some of that going on now with these repeal and reform efforts. Here, we're going to pass it, and then we're going to figure this out. Like, for example, I think it sounds great. Hey, we'll, we'll give states the right to opt out of certain of these things. You know, but, but if, you, if you give states some of this authority, the question is, does that really undermine the whole thing? And, and are people going to put up with it if that happens? Well, here's another thing. As the American public pays for their insurance, and they've got some of the best insurance in the goddamn country. Yeah, no, thank no, you. I mean, that that's it. You, you try this and live with it. Dan in Green Bay. Dan, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, I'm relating back to 1991 when I was denied insurance uh, because of pre-existing conditions. Right. And uh, I almost filed bankruptcy on here. I, I started a letter campaign to all my congressmen to see if they can help me out on this here stuff. The insurance company that I had bailed on me, saying it was too much for the geographical area that right. they weren't going to pay the bill. So, anyways, after my writing campaign, uh, of all the people, I was surprised, and something happened behind closed doors to this day. I don't know what happened, but Russ Feingold is the one that bailed me out. He mm-hmm. sent a letter and says, don't worry about it. Everything's taken care of. And yep. the next thing I know, my statements are clean. Now, the, the thing I'd like to see here is, you know, guaranteed insurance being a, an, uh, an employee for some company, you know, bust my back, which is really taken. Yes, it is. Uh, that I have some guarantee that I'm going to be taken care of in my retirement here. Now i got to bite my fingernails because I'm in fear that I'm not going to have insurance mm-hmm. Until I get into uh, Medicare, uh, Medicare at sixty-five, and uh, I only got a couple of years to go. But the thing is, is oh, yeah. what do I do? Oh no, right. Uh, that's the concern. If and, and thanks. To, and again, that that's been an issue that that everybody, Republicans and Democrats, have recognized. And, and and it's one thing for the people who made the decision, for example, to be uninsured all these years and to kind of take their chances. But it's another thing. What about the folks who've you know had insurance for their entire life? You know, who through no fault of their own lose their job, so they lose their insurance coverage. You know, yes, you can get COBRA for, you know, 18 months, but that's a high rate. And then after that, you're, you're on your own. And as a practical matter, you become uninsurable. 
And I understand we've always had these high-risk pools, but you become in, in Wisconsin, I don't know that this was as much of a problem as it was in a lot of other states, but you know, you now become uninsurable. You've lost your job through no fault of your own. You, you've run through your, your benefits, and so now you have to figure out, okay, how do I go out and get insurance? But you know, you've got that pre-existing condition, and maybe it's, it's something like diabetes that a lot of people have, or again, maybe it's that, that situation where you're looking at the catastrophic thing, you know, stage four breast cancer or whatever, and the insurers are now saying, okay, well, you know, it's not your fault that you lost your job, but you know what? You know, stage four breast cancer, you know, you could easily run up a million dollars in expenses over the course of the year. We're we're going to cover you because the law says we've got to, but we're going to charge you $20,000 a month, whatever, whatever, pick a number in premiums in order to pay for those costs. And you say, well, I can't have $20,000 a month. So you're effectively, you know, not able to afford the insurance. That's that's something that we were trying to deal with, and everybody needs to agree all along. I, I actually, I think the way they had it in the original bill probably was the more fair way, which said, hey, you have to have insurance, and if you don't have insurance, then you want to come back into the plan, there's going to be a surcharge. You're going to have to pay like 30% more, but that that's... That at least, that's a decision that you end up making. That's as opposed to saying, hey, the insurers can set any rate they want, which I think uh, effectively ends up, effectively it ends up forcing a lot of people with pre-existing coverage, including people who have been covered all their lives, in my example, it would it would price them out. So I'm just saying, do I think Obamacare needs to be repealed? Absolutely. Do I think it needs to be replaced with something? Absolutely. But in a hurry to get a deal done, particularly a hurry to get a deal done without any Democratic support at all, I think the Republicans need to go carefully here and make sure that you're doing it right. Just saying. It's 957, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up next, this is why some people choose not to adopt children in the United States. Stick around. It's 1008. This is Jeff Wagner. One final thought on discussion about pre existing illness. I got a number of emails from people who are saying, well, you know, it, it's. It's not fair. If I'm a 59-year-old man and I've been a non-smoker, it's not fair that I should have to pay the, the same insurance premium a, as a 59-year-old man who smoked for 30 years because they've got different health risks. Well, I, yes y- yes, and no. And I, I understand that argument. It's sort of based on the idea that, hey, if you're 59 years old and you've had a perfect driving record, you know, should you pay as much for automobile insurance as somebody who's 59 years old and has been in one wreck after another? I, I understand that and to an extent for example if you're in the private insurance market that is covered because for example people if you get your insurance like i do through your employer if you're a non-smoker you pay less than you do if you are in fact a a smoker so I, i get that but it's a little bit different when it comes to health insurance as opposed to automobile insurance let me share i have something on a text line that really was i've been thinking about during the break um, my 12-year-old granddaughter was born with a severe heart defect. She had corrective surgery at four months and recently had valve replacement surgery. Otherwise, she's very healthy. I am very concerned that if she ever wants to start her own business or needs to purchase insurance on her own, this could be a real problem. Just because one has access to insurance does not mean they can afford it. A similar problem exists with the high deductibles in the current program. I've written my congressman, and although he replied, there was no guarantee about pre-existing conditions. Yeah, that's... That is one of the factors that, that ends up being out there. Okay, I have several friends 
who over the years have adopted children. And it's just, it's actually, it's just been wonderful to watch, you know, the, these, these kids, kids grow up. But in, well, in most cases, maybe all, the, my friends, the, the parents, have gone outside the country to do the the adoptions, um, you know, in, in in one case, you know, it was China. Another case I can think of, it was it was Russia. They, they've gone outside the country, and one of the reasons that have motivated them to go outside of the country has been a concern that they didn't want. They wanted the adoption to be final. They didn't want to have to be dealing with issues ten years down the line when the birth mother or the birth father decides, hey, um, I, I've changed my mind, and now I, I, want to, I want to contest the adoption. And so, you know, they've, again, by going overseas, you, you incur a lot of costs, but you sort of make it unlikely that that is going to happen. Let me, let me tell you the story, and I want to get your reaction. Um, it's out of South Carolina. The adoptive parents, this is the way it's reported on Fox, the adoptive parents of a three-year-old South Carolina girl are taking their case to the Supreme Court after a lower court vacated the adoption of the child they've cared for since she was three weeks old. Tammy and Edward Dowsing are now, you know, in court trying to retain custody of their adopted daughter. The couple welcomed the girl into their home in 2013 when she was three weeks old. They have raised her as if she was their own. Now, this is an issue because an appellate court just recently vacated the adoption and ordered the girl to be returned to her biological father, who she has never met. All right, what happened is, the, the, the Dowsings, apparently um, the mom, the mother of this, this girl, um, and the mom had, um, let's say, cocaine in her system, um, and was determined to be an unfit mother. So the Department of Social Services placed the girl with them. They're, they're foster parents. So they were placed, she was placed with them when she was three weeks old. All right, so mom, mom's got all sorts of problems. Mom can't care for the child. Mom surrenders her parental rights. And so the, the family goes about adopting them. All right, dad. Dad is a jailbird. Dad at the time was, um, this is South Carolina, dad is in jail in Virginia on various charges. And while this adoption proceeding was going on, dad dad shows no interest in, in any of this. Now, admittedly, he, he's in jail, so he, he can't attend the proceedings, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to. Um, after dad gets out of jail, he makes no attempt to contact them about, you know, the, the daughter. Apparently, he sent one card through his attorney shortly before the girl's first birthday, first birthday, first birthday never tried to call the adoptive parents. Um, he, just, he just did not do anything. So, and of course, biological mom, biological mom is perfectly happy with this. So the adoptive parents, they've got a final order of adoption. They're raising the girl. Dad gets out of prison, had no contact with this girl at all, and now decides he wants her. He, he wants to undo the adoption, and jailbird dad wants to, uh, again, 
you know, he, he, he wants custody of her. And as it stands right now, a court in South Carolina has said, yep, we're going to undo the adoption. And biological dad, the jailbird father, he gets the kid, at least right now. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess number one. I think this is one of the reasons why so many parents are reluct- so many parents in the United States are reluctant to adopt children in the United States because of fear of exactly this. You know, parents, biological parents who either change their minds or who've shown no interest in the child at all, who suddenly come out of the woodwork, you know, whenever and decide that they want, now they want to be part of the child's life and they want to undo the adoption. That's number one. Number two, how could it possibly be in the best interest of this child who has been raised essentially since she was three weeks old in a loving, caring, nurturing family to at the age of three be pulled out of that family and to be placed in the custody, again, of jailbird father who has shown little or no interest in the child over her entire life. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is absurd that dad should be able to inject himself into this girl's life, especially I think it's absurd that dad should be able to undo the adoption. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's 1015 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1018 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Meet the people behind the headlines at Insight 2017. It's going to be hosted by me at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee two weeks from tonight. On the eve of the 50th Summerfest, see a rare sit-down interview with Bob Babish and Don Smiley together. What's in store for this milestone Summerfest? What surprises are yet to come? How can they possibly top having the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney on the main stage the last two years? Plus, we tell war stories. There are only 14 days left until Insight 2017, so get your tickets online and check out the entire guest list at WTMJ.com. All right, if you're just tuning in, this is this is one of the problems with adopting a child in the United States. It's this family in South Carolina. Mom is mom is cocaine addicted. She gives up custody of the child. This adoptive parents, their their foster care family, they take the daughter when she is three days old. They raise her as their own. She is now three years old. They go through the formal adoption proceedings. The biological dad is a jailbird. He is in jail doesn't try to intervene in the case, doesn't show up, doesn't do anything to have contact with the kid. Now he's out of jail. Now he says, hey, I'm the biological father. I want to raise her, give her back to me. And a court in South Carolina says, yep, that's what we're going to do. 414-799-1620. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're first. Good morning. Hi. uh, Good morning, Jeff. Uh, Yeah, we adopted uh, our our son uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically uh, it was a... I think, and this is straightforward, uh, this is uh, a while back, but back then it was uh, maybe it was the last case, I'm not sure, but uh, we, uh, they, uh, you know, gave up a right. child for adoption, and we accepted the child as our adopted, and that was the end of it. Yep. I don't want to have nothing to do with anyone else anymore, 
and I think it should be the end of the story. Yeah. Now, if Period. it's if if at some point in time your your child, when they get older, decides they want to try to have contact with their birth mom or birth dad or something, that's a different thing. But the last thing you want, Mike, is like the 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 biological parents who have given up control, who had no you know interest in placement in your child's life, coming back in and saying, hey, we've changed our mind, or now I know you've got these final orders, but here, give us the child back. That's not fair to the child. It's not fair to you. Yeah, it's a bunch of BS. Um, now, thanks for calling. And that's and again. Now, in, in this particular case, like the dad, the dad argues. Well, you know, I, I I was in I was in jail, but I mean, yes, I knew this was going on, and and so, uh, but I, I nevertheless, I was I was in jail. I didn't voluntarily agree to this. The biological mom did. I just didn't say anything about it. Well, okay, to me. To me, you can't let this whole thing go by. You can't not be involved in the process. You can't not object and then all of a sudden say, no, I've kind of changed my mind. I'm out of jail for three years. Hey, let's pull my daughter from him. And again, with... I don't think you have to think too hard about this situation to figure out who is the three-year-old going to be better off with, jailbird dad who has shown no interest in her in her entire life, or with this wonderful, caring family who has raised her like their own since she was three weeks old. Let's talk to Paul in Brookfield. Paul, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I have a, um, I have a sister, and uh, my family adopted her when she was three weeks old. And um, about a month and a half after we got hold of her, we went to adopt her. We were talking with the judge, and he says, has she become part of the family? Mm -hmm. And it was a resounding yes, most definitely. (laughs) Try and take her away. There's going to be problems. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, much less. Can you imagine if then three years after the fact? You no, know, so she. And in the case of this girl, it's the only family she's known. I mean, she she's been with this family since they were three weeks old. She's raised her as an infant. All of you have sudden you have some strange man who has no contact with her other than the fact that he was the sperm donor coming in and saying, "Hey, I want to pull her out of this family. Give her to me." I mean, that's just crazy. It's nuts. I have a four-year-old granddaughter, and if she were taken away from her mother and father. It would just be totally disastrous. This is this is absurdity yeah. run amok as yeah. far as some judge saying, you know what, I think that man has right. No, that man gave his rights up. Yeah, I, it, right, it, it, exactly. I mean, thanks for calling. The, the man, he has shown no interest in this child for the last three years. The only, It's not like he ever made any phone calls. It's the only contact was like a card when she turned one years old or something. That 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 was it. So it's not like this is somebody who's wanted to be part of the child's life. It's now just somebody who's trying to, again, come into the picture and insert themselves. And yes, I understand it's the biological father, but shouldn't the question be, who is the child at this stage you know, better off being with, and I don't think it's close. And like I say, this is part of the problem that you do run into. It's always, I'm sure, a fear in the back of the mind of certain adoptive parents in the United States. At least if you go overseas, you know the chances that, that this is going to happen are probably a lot less. Let's talk to Chris in Chicago. Chris, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Chris. I, I'm, I'm driving, and I'm listening to the story, and I, I, my wife and I received a foster child two weeks ago, two weeks old, to a heroin-addicted mother. And I'm cringing at the thought of uh, this situation. I I, I don't know if it speaks to why people don't adopt uh, American-born children, but I do think it speaks to why people are very hesitant to get into fostering 
because right. the state uh, almost routinely makes incredibly poor choices um, where the guardian ad litem is not, you know, their opinion is not taken into consideration and it's always just return home. Right. Um, we, we've been foster parents. We've got a, a son that we adopted, so we have some familiarity. I just can't believe that they're just going to cold turkey give this girl back to the father yep. as opposed to maybe re-entering him into her life slowly and them building a relationship, and then maybe it wouldn't be so hard. Or at least then making a decision as to who, who is better able to, to deal with the child. I mean, because, I mean, the reality is she's been raised by, and everybody says these are wonderful foster parents, you know, and the, obviously the girl thinks of them as mom and dad. So you're right, you're going to pull her out, and you're automatically going to say, okay, here's jailbird dad who's had nothing to do with you for the last three years. You know, here, here go with him. No, thanks, sir. And again, I, I mean, I, this is... This is one of the things that just has to scare people, that this preference that you get because, okay, yes, he was the sperm donor. I understand that, but is that in the best interest of the kid? Lisa in Waukesha. Lisa, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. I totally agree with that caller that just um, was with you. Mm -hmm. We were in a similar situation with my daughter, who thankfully we were able to adopt her, but the court system didn't do their job. Um, The guardian ad litem tried to protect our daughter. However, um, they didn't do their job to terminate the birth father's parental rights appropriately. Right. So she had no idea who he was, hadn't seen her since she was seen him since she was an infant. And all of a sudden, he finds out that mom's parental rights were terminated, his parental rights were terminated, and he decides he wants her back. She has no idea who he is. Right. And ended up going to a jury trial, and they overturned. We had an adoption scheduled two weeks out. They canceled our adoption hearing. We had a jury trial, and he won his parental rights back. And we went through such a process with therapists, um, child protect, you know, the mm-hmm. protection and social workers to try to start a relationship between the, the two of them to see what she went through, um, mm-hmm. being scared of being around him, being uncomfortable being around him, especially being a female with an unknown male is really uncomfortable when you're she, at that time, she was um, four and five years old, and she was just so scared. And we had already transitioned to, we were mom and dad, we were right. no longer aunt and uncle for her, and it was torture for all of us. Eventually, what ended up happening is she did not come to feel comfortable with him at all, and the visits were very traumatic, and eventually he stopped showing up because right. it was difficult for him as well, and then yeah. he stopped showing up altogether, so they did end up... Um, terminating his parental rights because he just stopped. But they put but you through hell so for a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just terrible. Yeah. It was terrible on her. And she already had, you know, issues from being neglected as an infant. And I just think the whole process, it's all about the birth parents. It's all about the birth parents. They don't care about the child. Right. You know, the guardian at Lightham, like that caller said, the guardian at Lightham really doesn't have a leg to stand on. The whole thing is reuniting, you know, the parents right. with the children, and they have all the rights in the world. And these poor, innocent children, you know, have to be drugged through the mud on right. all of this and go through years of therapy afterwards because of the trauma. And I just don't think it's right. No. Thank, thanks for the call, and thanks for the perspective on this, Lisa. I don't either. I, I, I just don't either. I understand biology is important. But in this case, jailbird dad is the sperm donor. The real mom and dad are the people that have raised this girl since she was three weeks old. And to, 
to pull her from him and send him to jailbird dad is crazy in the extreme. 1028, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Thirty-five, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Get to know the people behind the headlines at Inside Two Thousand Seventeen. I am going to be hosting it. It's at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee. Two weeks from tonight, see Governor Scott Walker like you've never seen him before. Hear what it's like to live in the executive mansion. What it's like to run for president. How the budget is coming together in Madison, and get the real story behind the fight over Act Ten. There are only 14 days left until Inside 2017. Get your tickets online. Check out the full guest list, WTMJ.com. One final thought. I have an email here from Bill. Dear Jeff, my brother and sister-in-law took in foster children early in their marriage. After raising a boy from one month to two years of age, they wanted to adopt the boy. The mom was a drug addict, and the father disappeared. As they made their moves to adopt, family services provided the mother, the drug addict mother, with an attorney whose job was to enable the mother to regain parental rights and try to block the adoption. Way to go, family services. You've got a drug addict mom. The child is being raised in a caring, loving environment, and you want to try to block that. Okay, good. The lawyer advised the mother to begin visiting her son on a regular basis. After ignoring the boy for two years, she set up a plan to visit him every other week. That lasted a couple of months, and then, of course, she went back to her drug habit. After a torturous legal wrangle, the mother's parental rights were finally revoked and the adoption went through. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. All right, it's the biological mother, clearly unfit, not involved in the kid's um, kids upbringing. And of course, then of course, when you make an adoption like this, you always wonder, what about the father? You know, what what is the father going to turn up someday and say, "Hey, I want uh, you know, I I want these rights restored." You know, and and again, no care, concern at all about what is really best for the kid. Just saying. All right. Donald Trump broke one one interesting tradition he um he was invited to throw out the ceremonial first pitch at the season opener game in in washington um and this is a trend you got to go back to william taft and the presidents have been invited to been invited to throw out the opening pitch on opening days at various games um trump was invited to go to nationals park in dc and throw out the first pitch um he he declined to do that now that's just by way of background at the end of the game, and perhaps you saw this on Sports Center or some of the talking head shows, at the end of the game the other day, this would have been on Monday, you had a number of activists who unfurled this giant impeach, it was impeach hashtag Trump banner um, in the opening day stance. And actually, the, the thing... Um, it was hung from the observation deck above the first base side. It's this enormous thing that covered like one of the sections, and it says impeach Trump. Now, it does make me wonder how you got a banner like this. I mean, I've seen the security we have at least at Miller Park, and it does make me wonder how you got a political banner like this in through through security. I mean, Major League Baseball has tightened up security a lot this year. I mean, I we all went through that with, and it's, it's not the Brewers, but now Major League Baseball, it used to be so much easier to get your credentials and your parking pass if you're a member of the working media. It, it's a lot tougher now, and it's not because of the Brewers. It's because of Major League Baseball, and you've got all these different hoops that you have to jump through and things like that, and I, I get it. I appreciate that. There's now more intense screening as you go into the, the ballparks, and I again, I 
get that. It's the world we live in, which does make me wonder how you got this giant impeach Trump banner into the stadium on opening day. And I mean, and I talk about big. This thing is big. It, it covers one entire section. So anyhow, they roll that out. They get all this attention. And now it's getting, again, it's being displayed in all the different talking head shows. But this idea that's out there about Im- impeach Trump. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I, I understand that Donald Trump is a controversial figure. At the same time, he won the election, in my opinion, fair and square. The voters spoke. I was not happy, you know, eight-plus years ago when Barack Obama was elected president. I didn't think he was going to be good for the country. I wasn't happy four years ago when he was reelected to the presidency. But you know what? Um, elections, as we often say, have consequences. Here, what has happened is since Trump has been elected, you have had the, the, the left has just become more and more agitated in deciding, well, this is not a legitimate president. We can't stand him. We can't stand any of his policies. They're already putting incredible pressure on, for example, members of the Senate to just, you, you just got to block it. You know, you, you can't go, you can't have an up or down vote on the members, on Neil Gorsuch's appointment to the Supreme Court. You cannot do anything. Your role as a Democrat now, unless you want to have people run against you from the left, you have to obstruct. And you have this sort of movement as, you know, shown on this this big banner, impeach Trump. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this strategy, the we're going to be the anti-Trumps. We're going to do everything we can to fight him at any level possible. No agreement, no surrender. No, nothing. We're going to go out there. We're going to try to move for let's try to get the impeachment train rolling. I think ultimately, even understanding that right now President Trump's approval rating is below 40 percent. I think this attitude, the no, 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 no. I think this attitude is going to be incredibly counterproductive and maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but a year or two from now. I think that the Democrats who are playing this obstructionist game or the you got to hate Trump, the Trump derangement syndrome, which is very similar to Walker derangement syndrome, I think it's going to be counterproductive. I think this strategy is going to backfire. And if the attitude is impeach Trump, impeach Trump, impeach Trump, I think pretty soon the silent majority of Americans are going to get sick of it. I'm sick of it already. How about you? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1042. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1045, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's Masters Week, and Augusta National will be a tiger-free zone. But even if Woods was playing, he would be nowhere near the top of the leaderboard. Greg Matzik explains why tonight on Sports Central. Tune in, 607, Mary in Waukesha. Mary, good morning. Um, hello, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Um, I am not a Trump supporter at all. Um, however, I am not a block everything Mr. Trump does at all costs. Right. And I feel that at least the majority of the people that are against Trump or his actions feel more like I do versus the derangement group, yeah. as you called us. Yeah. I think that was a little derogatory. 
Well, no, um, it, it, it was it was intended to be derogatory. Yes, if you suffer from I, Trump derangement syndrome, yes, that was intended to be derogatory. Yes. Okay, then I'll take your label. <laughs> I I do try to always reference my news sources, hear things from more than one source, to try to get as sure. close to the middle as I can, sure. and. I think that a lot of the concern, or at least my concern, and I think from a lot of people that are not supporting Mr. Trump, there's just so many different things that are very concerning. Mm-hmm. The, sure, the Mary, let me just stop you. See, I mean, yes. I, I, see, I get that. I, I mean, I, I understand. I mean, I, I wasn't a supporter of most of the stuff that President Obama did. So I, I get that. I mean, I, I understand that there's going to always be legitimate disagreement. I guess one of the things that, that I think is kind of troubling, though, is sort of this almost on some people, like the folks that are showing up at the stadium unfurling this giant impeach Trump banner. All right, he hasn't done anything to be impeached. I mean, you know, you, you can disagree with his policies, but really, you know, impeach? I, well, I think we need to see how the independent investigation, if indeed an independent investigation gets to happen, what happens with that. Um I agree beyond that. I don't think that there has been an impeachable action yet. I choose to be very wary. And I think, like I said, I think more people are like me being very watchful and concerned with just the very many steps that have happened, such as some of the secretary people that have been nominated. For instance, Betsy DeVos, that had no experience in education. Okay, well, but I guess that's the, to me, I mean, I, and I understand oh, all that, Mary, and thanks for, I mean, see, I understand, those are policy disagreements, and I'm not, I'm not arguing that everybody has to jump on the Trump train. I mean, the position I've always taken, and I wasn't, I wasn't a supporter of Donald Trump during the election campaign, I wasn't a Hillary Clinton supporter either, but I mean, actually, I think, I think a lot of the policies, my my objection with Donald Trump continues to be, especially as president, more with style than with substance. But, I mean, I, I guess I look at this and say, yeah, I understand you got concerns with cabinet people or things like that. And I appreciate that there's always going to be legitimate policy differences. But it's this – this this hysterical thing. Oh, we've we've got to we've got to impeach Donald Trump, or you know we're going to blow up everything. The, the pressure that says that you've got to be the, this doctor. No, we could either try to work with the president and see if. And my goodness, I have to tell you, if if there was a president, this is the guy that wrote the art of the deal. If there was ever a president that I think you could have at least centrist Democrats trying to reach out, for example. You know, let's talk about health care reform. If if you agree that I think most people do, that Obamacare is going to, whether you want to use the phrase death spiral or not, is unsustainable. If, you, if there was ever a time where you could have 30, 40, 50 centrist Democrats go to the White House and say, look, you know, we, we agree that there's changes that need to be made. You know, this is we can use the Paul Ryan plan as the framework, but we got 30 or 40 votes and let's do this or that or the other thing. And I have no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump would be willing to move towards the center in order to get this type of stuff done. That is making the deal. But that's not the way the approach is played out. The approach is played out. No, we don't want to go and try to deal with him at all. We don't want to try to get some of our agenda through. We're just going to be the ones that end up trying to obstruct. And maybe that plays well for, you know, raising money and for some of the the websites and for things like that. I do wonder how that plays out. Again, big picture. Let's talk to Victor in Bayside. Victor, good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Victor. 
you know, as a moderate conservative, you know, I felt that Republicans were sort of the party of no during Obama, and I was worried that the voters would punish them. And yet, they actually, Republicans actually won the election. Yep. That I just think Democrats, I am not in any way supporting what they're doing now, but I think they're just doing what the American people tell them to do. The American people just sort of like this, you know, polarization and obstructionist, and frankly, the uh, path of least resistance for Democrats is just to do the same yep. thing and hope that they get the, the House and Senate back in 2018. Well, right, you know, and you're you're correct. Now, the Senate's going to be a tough. The Senate's going to be a tough haul because there's so many Democrats who are up for election. But yeah, and that's that's the decision, especially that that's the especially that the far left has made. The out on the fringes, it's been this is how we're going to raise money. We're going to be that we're going to be completely in the opposition. And if you as a Democrat even decide that you might you might agree to allow Neil Gorsuch to have an up or down vote. Um, then, then just be prepared to have your fundraising cut off. And I guess maybe that's the idea. They think it's going to work. I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, the last election was such an anomaly. I just think in general, I think in general, you know, being obstructionist doesn't necessarily work. But maybe I'll be proven wrong two years from now. Who knows? Yeah. Well, and, and to your original point, you know, the silent majority, you know, at least so far, they've proven to be exactly that, just silent. They sort of let the extremes on both sides determine the candidates and who runs right. the country. Well, right, and that is, I mean, thanks, and you're right, that's also, that has been, there. It, there are no moderates anymore. That That's just... That's just the example. There, there, it is. There's, there's people on the left and there's people on, on the right, and, and never the twain shall meet. It would have been interesting to me that this could have gone either way. Like I say, I think – I do not think Donald Trump is anywhere near as ideologically driven as Barack Obama or George Bush or Bill Clinton or – Ronald Reagan. I, I, I don't think he has I, – I think he is much more ideologically flexible. What's happened – and that's why I sincerely believe that if you had a, a moderate Democratic coalition um, who – maybe just a little bit larger than the Freedom Caucus – who went to him and said, hey, look, we, we're willing to give you 30 or 40 votes. You don't have to fool – with the, the, the far right who keep moving the goalpost further and further along. You don't need to worry about them. You know, you've got the majority of Republican votes in the House. We, we've got another 30 or 40. We agree that Obamacare, health care reform, we agree that this needs to be changed. Um, this is where we would like to see it. And, you know, give us this, give us that. We'll give you the 30 or 40 votes. We're going to give you what you want, you'll be able to get something done, and we'll be able to say, hey, we've, we've improved upon Obamacare. The problem is you, you can't do that. Th- those those Democrats can't do that, so it forces the Paul Ryans of the world and the Donald Trumps of the world to, again, keep going further and further to the right with this to get these 20 or 25 or 30 votes or however many votes there are in the Freedom Caucus. Um, Democrats, at least some, are missing an opportunity to really shape policy. Now, could they get everything they want? No, but they're missing this opportunity. And I do firmly believe maybe they think it's gaining the points right now. But but this is early on in a presidency, whether or not this is going to be sustainable and whether or not the strategy is going to work long term, very much up in the air. And again, I go back to the Act 10 examples. I mean, remember all the protests and remember all the reaction and remember this, you know, we're going to be the, the anti-Scott Walkers and stuff. Well, OK, how did that end up working out? 
Walker won the recall election. Walker was re-elected to a four-year term. Republicans have overwhelming control of both the uh, Assembly and the Senate in Wisconsin. I mean, okay, really? How did that obstructionism work? Would you have perhaps been better off trying to work together and get some changes that were that you wanted, not everything you wanted, but at least okay, take care of some of the worst elements of Act Ten or whatever, but that's not the that's not the way they chose to approach it. And now, you know, you're a minority party and will probably be a minority party for a generation. Ten fifty five, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. It's ten fifty eight, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ coming up in less than ten minutes. Supply, demand, and the free market, or simple price gouging, and should we do it in downtown Milwaukee? Stick around. We'll be talking about that. Plus, controversy uh, involving Fox News. Advertisers are now starting to bail on Bill O'Reilly. What do we make of that? Stick around. That's all coming up. Hey, big news yesterday. Tony Romo. Of course, you know, Kenosha native, Tony Romo announcing that he's going to be retiring from football and he's going to be moving into the broadcast booth. He's now becoming the, the principal analyst on, on CBS. Forget about forget about having to, like, pay your dues. He's going to move right away in with Jim Nance and he's going to be the, the top broadcast analyst. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the former top broadcast analyst, Phil Sims, who apparently still has time left on his contract, they don't know what to do exactly with Phil Sims now. Um, CBS, apparently, the story is leaving the door open for Phil Sims to come back and do something, but nobody nobody knows after almost 20 years what, what he is going to be doing there. And I guess the question becomes, if you're Phil Sims, um, do you want to stay in that sort of environment? Personally, a little bit of Phil Sims goes a long way with me, but I am surprised that, you know, with no broadcast experience at all, that CBS would put... Tony Romo in that role without really knowing whether he can fill it or not. Now, Tony Romo is a very eloquent guy, eloquent guy, and I have no doubt that he might be able to do a good job. But sometimes just because you can play the game doesn't mean that you can really analyze the game. And that's probably what Phil Sims is thinking right now. It's 1059. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1108, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I know you have to get up early. You should come out to Insight. You've never been to one, have you? I have not. You should come out. What time do you wrap things up? Well, we start at 6.30. We don't have to stay for the whole thing. But it starts at 6.30. I could make kind of, that. You could go out. Well, sure. People would love to see. <laughs> see, we, we could add you to the guest list. People would love. <laughs> see, people do not. I, 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 I mean, I know you have been a huge radio presence in, in this market for years and years and years. But people need to know what a wonderful person you are. Oh, you really that, are. Thank you, Jeff. Well, it is. And you're, you're fun. You should, you should, at least you don't have to stay for the whole thing. But, you know, you just, just kind of stop out. Say hi. I'd be happy Meet to. your adoring fan base. Well, let's hope. <laughs> I'll, bring, I'll bring dollar bills. I can pass them out. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny you mentioned dollar bills. I was, um, I was in Las Vegas, of course, last weekend. And I, I hang out a lot at the, the sports book, you know, and I'm, I'm betting horses and things like that. And, and what will happen is, like, you're, okay, the bet will be $18, so I'll put out a 20 and they'll give you $2. At one point in time, I look, and I had a stack. It, it was it was 40 singles. I mean, I I looked like I was ready to to take Hondo and hit every strip joint in, you know, <laughs> and of course, Hondo says, why didn't I call him? You know, so then, then I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with this? So I, I found a video poker machine. And it must have taken me five minutes. I fed in every dollar one by one that was into, quick. The, into the video poker machine. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like, you, you know, you, you got that there. But oh, I think about insight, you know, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. But yeah, we we would let Hondo. You're going to be there, right? 
You will be there. You're going to be there. You're going to be making the whole thing happen. Exactly. I th- everybody would love to see Jane Matinair out there. All right. See? There we go. We'll, 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 no, see? She's like, boy, I was going to get out of here. Now he's invited me. Well, people want to see you too, Hondo. That's the great thing. Inside 2017. All right. Put it on your calendar. It is, uh, by the way, two weeks from uh, two weeks from tonight. Country Springs Hotel. Tickets on sale now at uh, WTMJ.com. A great guest list. Uh, Governor Scott Walker. Not one, not two, but three sitting members of the state Supreme Court. Joe Bartolotta, a Milwaukee restaurant empresario. Um, we've got Don Smiley and Bob Babish together. Wayne Larravee and Larry McCarran together. And one of the things I really wanted to do with Insight this year is kind of take it back to to its roots. You know, when we started years and years ago, um, really representing the diversity of the WTMJ audience. And so, you know, we, we've got a, a segment, you know, people from the sports world and people from the entertainment world and, you know, Joe, Joe Bartolotta from the restaurant world and three justices from the Supreme Court. That's that's legal. And then, of course, the, you know, when you're talking about politics in Wisconsin, who better than Scott Walker and might uh, might still be rolling out a couple extra guests as well. But um, give you an idea. Check it out. WTMJ.com. Tickets. Hope to see you two weeks from tonight. The big news. Jane just brought it to you, and I don't know what to make of this, but there's going to be a lot of analysis going on during the day. Steve Bannon. Bannon has always been President Trump's bomb thrower. Um, he's the, the chief White House strategist. Steve Bannon, of course, is the guy who was associated with the, the alt-right. He was the former what president of, of Breitbart News, the chairman of Breitbart News, which is, of course, the, the sort of you know, right-wing website that um, was the driving force in many respects between, like, supporting Donald Trump. Um, you know, he's, he's been the architect, I think, of Trump's um, sort of populism and his, you know, nationalism. You know, that's, that's Bannon. Bannon, as the chief White House advisor, has been in, at least if, if, you, if you believe a lot of the reports, he's been in a sort of a power struggle with some of the more mainstream elements of the Republican Party, including, you know, Rice, Pre- Rice Priebus, you know, former you know, chairman of the Republican National Committee, who is the chief of staff. And if you will remember a few weeks ago, there were reports that um, at least some people, it was believed that this was being driven by the, the Bannon faction inside the White House. The long knives are out, and they, they were going after Priebus. And, you know, the criticism was, well, you know, Priebus is too much of a meddler, and he's got his hands in all these different things, and, you know, he we, we need to kind of rein him in. And to the extent that there's bad publicity, it's because of Priebus. And I, I've always thought that was grossly unfair. I mean, you, you want to talk about somebody who has a really, really difficult job in Washington, D.C., and that's Reince Priebus being the chief of staff for Donald Trump. Because I don't care I don't care whether you're a Trump supporter, whether you're a Trump opponent or whatever. Um, there, there's no question that, I mean, I just go back that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you, you know, you wake up, it's a Sunday morning, you're getting ready to get your kids ready for church or have coffee or, or whatever and read the newspaper. And then you hear that the president's been, you know, up at five o'clock in the morning tweeting about, you know, being wiretapped by the Russians. And then all of a sudden it's, okay, my day has now changed. Now, I have no doubt that Reince Priebus um, probably does interject himself into a lot of stuff, but I think that's probably because uh, imagine the dike with all the different holes that are busting in it. I think he's probably running around, ending up putting up a lot of fires. But anyhow, at least the conventional wisdom is there's always been a little bit of a power struggle between the the Steve Bannon, Breitbart, bomb thrower 
wing of Trump supporters and the more traditionalists that the Reince Priebus. In any event, one of the very, very controversial decisions that uh, President Trump made early on in his presidency was a decision to put Chief White House strategist Steve Bannon on the National Security Council. Um, There's really no historical precedent for for that. Um, So the thinking was that Bannon was put on the National Security Committee as kind of a, a check against National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. So it was like, okay, we 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 want to we want to make sure that there's somebody really really close to Trump who's in this room during these meetings who can either try to rein people in or make sure that things get reported back to the president or or, or whatever. Um, Bannon only attended one meeting, but he has been on the National Security Council. Um, Bloomberg News first reported this, but apparently what's happened is. Bannon has now been removed from his role on the National Security Commission, National Security Committee. Uh, Apparently, he has been replaced by the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford. Um, They're they're now back on, on the committee. Nobody knows exactly why this was, and I'm sure that that's going to be the subject of discussion during the course of the day. The um, initial line was that Bannon, he was on there, like I say, to provide a, a check against Michael Flynn. Now that Flynn is no longer the national security advisor, the argument is that Bannon doesn't need to be there. He doesn't need the check anymore. So, you know, he, he's going to leave his role. He apparently only tended one meeting uh, don't know what this is all about. Don't know. Some people are always going to just play this as a as a demotion for Bannon or a sign of losing power. That might be. It also just might be again the reflection that he's got a lot of other stuff to do. He only attended one meeting. Putting him on this particular council was a um, putting him on the National Security Council was a controversial decision. If he's not attending the meetings, it's like, okay, why take up a spot if you don't think you need him to act as a check for somebody anymore? You know, why put him there? So uh, this is going to be the big news of the day. I think I think you need to be careful in reading. If, if people are going to read this and say, okay, Steve Bannon is losing power inside the White House, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. It just might be a reflection that there's, you know, other things that, you know, he's going to be spending his time doing. Like I say, he only attended one meeting. Coming up next, they call it surge pricing. They're doing it in Chicago. Should we do it in Milwaukee? We discuss. 1117, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1119, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ with all this other stuff going on. Our digital people remind me. I would be remiss if I didn't encourage you to go to WTMJ.com, click on our mobile app section. You can download podcasts of all the programs. I know lots of people have been downloading uh, podcasts of this show. We do it every day. I certainly appreciate that. We also have some podcasts from Voices you do not hear on the radio on a daily basis. They're very interesting as well. Check it all out. Download my show's podcast and a number of other podcasts, WTMJ.com, the, the mobile application. All right. Down. Okay. Oh. The, the Brewers, of course, it was opening day Monday at uh, Miller Park. The Brewers play the Cubs this weekend at Miller Park. The Chicago Cubs, world champion Chicago Cubs, 
pains me to say that, but they are the world champions. Um, their opening day is next Monday around Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field, I, I understand that this is um, almost sacrilegious to say this, but, I mean, Wrigley Field is historic, and I get that. Wrigley Field is also a dump. You know, it, it, it's just, it's not not. I, I get it that it's all the baseball tradition, all the baseball lore. Give me Miller Park. I, I'm just saying with a roof and things like that. Um, but but you know, people love Wrigley Field, and I will say this: there's it's a lot of fun. The environment around Wrigley Field, you know, Wrigleyville and all the bars and the rest. It's it's a lot of fun. I, I get that Wrigley Field itself. Like I say, I mean, I think it's a dump. But a lot of people go to Wrigley Field. A lot of people enjoy it. Um, there are. There are parking meters. I mean, Wrigley Field is is in a, a residential you know neighbor neighborhood, and there are in the immediate area around Wrigley Field, there are there are about eleven 1, hundred street spaces. I mean, parking spaces. You know, metered parking lots, metered metered parking around the stadium for for people. If you're fortunate enough to find one, you know, you you can put it you could put it in a meter which, you know, would be great. It's not unlike at, um, well, now it's a little bit different because of all the construction at the Bradley Center. But before they started tearing up the parking lots and stuff, I mean, there were, and there still are to an extent, but there's meters downtown. You know, you could, instead of going in paying 20 or 30 or $40 to park, you know, if you're lucky enough, you could find a space on the street, you could feed the meter, and you could go into the game. Well, what Chicago has started to do is they have started to use what they call surge pricing for their parking meters. So, I mean, normally normally the it costs $2 to park for an hour. What they have done this year is around the games, around when when the Cubs are playing, when there's going to be a home game, for, you know, during the game and the hours preceding and a couple hours afterwards, they have doubled the cost of the parking meters. So instead of paying $2 an hour to park, it's now going to cost you $4 an hour to park if you want to park on the street. And then, you know, once the game is over, it goes back to its regular pricing. They call this, I mean, again, surge pricing. This is similar to what, I don't know, I mean, it's it's similar to what the, for example, the Brewers you know, they charge more, you know, when the Cubs are in town than they do when it's like a Tuesday night game, maybe where the Colorado Rockies are playing or, or whatever. I mean, th- this is surge pricing is not unusual in the entertainment industry. You know, we and it's not unusual like in baseball. You charge more for the games that are going to be the marquee attractions because, you know, people are going to be willing to pay it. But this is, to my knowledge, the first time a city has ever decided to do this with regard to parking. I mean, normally the parking meters are the parking meters, you know, and if you're lucky enough to find a space and feed the meter, that's it. But Chicago says, well, you know, we think it's we think it's supply and demand. And this is, we believe, this is what Chicago says, they believe that they can get an additional $1.5 million in revenue for the city simply by doubling the fees at these parking meters. All right, well, as you might expect, a number of people are screaming bloody murder, saying this is price gouging. I've been trying to wonder, you know, whether or not is this something, is it price gouging or is it supply and demand? And is it something that, for example, would work around here? For instance, 
um, when you have, let's say, Summerfest is going on, and you have people that instead of you know paying whatever you got to do to pay to park, you know there are there are parking meters in the third ward. There are you know there is on street parking you know within a couple blocks of Summerfest, for example. I mean, would this be something the city of Milwaukee should look into, saying okay, instead of charging whatever it is, a dollar an hour to park or $2 an hour, whatever it might be. You know, we know that there's going to be high demand. We know that people are going to be occupying these spaces. We know that people are going to want this. So let's take advantage of the fact that there's a limited number of these parking spaces. There's high demand. Let's let's double the cost for parking. Is surge parking, is, is surge pricing for parking a, a good idea or is it price gouging? Is it something the city of Milwaukee should look at again doing when there's, again, a high-demand event that's going on? I'll use Summerfest as an example, but fill in the blank. You could do this if there's a high-demand event going on at the convention center or a high-demand event that's going on at the you know, Bradley Center slash the New Bucks Arena. Where is this price gouging? Would you feel like you're being ripped off? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss next. It's 1125. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1127. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, if you're going down to see a Chicago Cubs game around Wrigley Field for the first time this year, the city is using what they call um, surge pricing. They are doubling the cost of parking meters. So it used to be two bucks an hour. Now you have to pay four bucks an hour to park on the streets around the Cub games. They say it's going to raise an extra $1.5 billion. Are they being ripped off, or is this a great idea? And should the city of Milwaukee look at doing something like this for, again, high-demand events, double the cost of parking on the streets for Summerfest? What do you think? Mary in Pewaukee. Mary, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. I think it's nothing but price gouging, greed. Um, mm-hmm. And if they do that, it will keep a lot of people with a moderate income from being able to go and see some events that they might like to see. Right. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but for reasons like this, just because of the high cost of everything, I have never even been to the Bradley Center. Really? Really? Really. Huh. Well, I mean, right, and it, it, and it is, I mean, see, and nowadays, it's not just, for example, it's not just the ticket cost, but it's also all the attendant costs with the, you know, there's, there's not much parking down there anymore. Because, so now, I mean, the lots are all charging, you know, 25 and $30, you know, to park, and unless you want to walk half a mile or three quarters of a mile or whatever, uh, it, it is, it's one of those things. Now, thanks for the call, Mary. It, it is the, those costs that are out there. Now, Jim sends in on our text line. Jim says, in principle, this is no different than what you were grousing about with the NCAA attorney, right, where you had, you know, parking lots that were charging 80 to to $100 for people to, you know, park within a couple of blocks when you came to the NCAA tournament. Yes, in principle, it is like that. But what's different is this is the city that's doing it. I mean, it's one thing if a private parking lot operator wants to, I think you can argue whether it's good policy, but it's one thing if a private parking lot operator thinks, hey, supply and demand is such that I can do this, I can get away with it. Um, And of course, if you make it too high, then, you know, people are going to go to, you know, other places. But yeah, that's the private operator. In this particular case, it's the city that is doing it. 
And while I am a free market guy, when it comes to the city and when it comes to parking meters, um, I, I think you got to be really careful with this. And it's one thing, I guess, maybe if you've got enough demand with Cubs games, I think the, the city of Milwaukee, this is not an idea whose time has come. And I think, you know, if this is something that people in the Common Council or the mayor came up with, there, we're going to charge extra when there's an event in town. I have a feeling that that might be the type of thing that actually would generate some citizen response. Now, typically, we're pretty sleepy around here. It takes a lot to upset people. My guess is if you started doubling the rates at parking meters for events like Summerfest, even that, that might be the thing, that might be the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back. It's 11.35, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Get to know the people behind the headlines at Insight 2017, hosted by me. It's at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee. It is two weeks from this evening. I'm going to sit down with the longtime radio team. Yes, we have both of them. From the Green Bay Packers, Wayne Larravee and Larry McCarron, less than a week before the 2017 NFL Draft. You wouldn't have Batman without Superman. You wouldn't have Scafidi without Bill Stat. You wouldn't have Thelma without Louise. We've got Larravee and McCarron together. We'll get the inside scoop on the Packers' needs, reinforcements for Aaron Rodgers, how the team plans to get back to the NFC Championship game. Also, I'm going to give Wayne and Larry a chance to tell some war stories. There are only two weeks left until Insight 2017. Go online right now, WTMJ.com. We've got the complete guest list up there. I think the one name that's not on up there yet is Joe Bartolotta, who's going to be joining us. The, Of course, Joe Bartolotta of Bartolotta's Restaurant fame. Um, but all the other guests are listed, and we'll get his name up there as well. Get your tickets online. Check out the full guest list. Only 14 days. I am looking forward to this quite a bit. So check it out. All right. Bill O'Reilly. Of course, the host of The O'Reilly Factor on, on Fox News is – Certainly the, the Fox Network's most visible star. The, his show draws, you know, nothing's close to it in the world of cable news. I mean, it draws 4 million viewers a night. Um, they estimate that in the last two years, it's generated more than $446 million in advertising revenue. Bill, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly, he is, he's Godzilla. You know, when it comes to the the whole cable news thing, and he's been that way for a long time. You know, he is, I think, one of the faces of Fox News. Just recently re-extend um, his contract. I think was up this year, and they say they've extended for another couple years. So, I mean, Bill O'Reilly is the real deal when it comes to fans. Um, O'Reilly has been in the target, in the sight lines of the New York Times for a while. Now, I was in Vegas over the weekend, and when I'm in Las Vegas, I really do punch out on current events. I might check the stock market once or twice, but otherwise, the only newspaper I look at is the Daily Racing Forum. Um, Coming back, I I picked up uh, the Sunday New York Times in the Las Vegas airport, and big front-page story in the Sunday New York Times about – you know, Bill O'Reilly, big investigative report that they had done. They found five women. Now, some of this was old news, but they, they found five women who had accused Bill O'Reilly of sexual harassment or inappropriate behavior. And they said that, you know, total between O'Reilly either reaching into his own pocket and or Fox News, um, that there had been $13 million in various settlements that had been paid out to these women. And since then, there's been a couple other women, I guess, that have come forward as as well. So, you know, that was the story. Again, some of this was old news. Some of it broke new ground. You know, from uh, the perspective of both Fox and O'Reilly, 
they, they denied any sort of wrongdoing, but they said, okay, we settled these cases to make the, these things go away. All right, so it stayed there. Since then, there has been a, a fallout. Um, Fox News is, is looking at what's being described as a, a major advertising revolt. Uh, the story today is that at least, I mean, thus far, at least um, 11 sponsors ha- have announced that they are withdrawing ads from from the show. They're with suspending their, their sponsorship. Mercedes-Benz and Hyundai announced their decisions Monday night. Tuesday, they were joined by BMW of North uh, America, GlaxoSmithKline, T. Rowe Price, Mitsubishi, Allstate, Bayer, um, Constant Contact, an online marketer, Untuck It, a men's clothing distributor, and Sanofi Consumer Healthcare, which advertise products like Act Mouthwash. All these different you know companies have said, okay, in the wake of these allegations of sexual harassment, these settlements, we're we're, we're going to suspend our advertising. Um, other companies have said, looking, or they said they're going to look at it. Uh, Jenny Craig says, well, you know, we condemn all forms of sexual harassment. Um, you know, we'll we'll take a look at this. So, I mean, there's other, the implication is that there might be other shoes to drop. But this, of course, comes on the heels of the former chairman of Fox News, you know, Roger Ailes, who resigned in the face of sexual, um, resigned or was let go or whatever, in the face of uh, allegations of sexual harassment. But right now, it's not just a New York Times story, but it is the fact that, at least for the moment, You've got advertisers who are, you know, hitting Fox News kind of in the pocketbook, saying, "Hey, we're we're, we're not going to sponsor O'Reilly anymore," and, you know, it's not just one or two; it's apparently eleven, and it's and it's big, it's big time sponsors. All right, I want to open up the phone lines. Our numbers are four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have no doubt that, like you. Uh, I am probably like you. I'm, I'm a fan of the O'Reilly Factor. I don't watch it all the time, but I, 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 I have enjoyed his program for years. I do not necessarily know what to make of these various allegations that are out there, but it is serious when it gets to the point that you have lots and lots of big advertisers who are, you know, at least suspending, if not canceling, their advertising buys. At some point in time. You know, that that has an effect, especially if it starts to snowball and more and more advertisers decide to back out. So here is my question. This is I've got a I've got a theory on this, but I'm curious as to what you think. All right. Is is this something that Bill O'Reilly comes back from? I mean, is this something that that three months from now or six months from now, it's going to be just something forgotten? It's going to be water under the bridge. Or is this going to do lasting damage to the O'Reilly brand and perhaps even to his show on Fox News. How big a deal do you think this is? Does does he survive? Does this cost him popularity? How is this going to play out? And how does this, will this affect your viewing habits at all? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1142, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. (laughs) 
1146. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff writes, uh, they should fire Bill O'Reilly as soon as possible. I think they should have done so when he was practically on his knees begging Donald Trump to reconsider when he was refusing to participate in the presidential debates. We are discussing this controversy involving Bill O'Reilly. Over the weekend, the New York Times publishes, I hate to use the term expose, because a lot of it, a lot of it was kind of rehashing old news, but uh, the allegations are over the last several years, either Bill O'Reilly personally, the host of the O'Reilly Factor, the very popular show on Fox News, or Fox and or Fox, have paid, what was the number, $13 million in settlements to five women who allege sexual harassment or things of, of the like. Um, O'Reilly denies wrongdoing. The argument is, hey, sometimes his point is, hey, when you're a celebrity like I am, you are a target for these things, and sometimes you just settle the cases. Don't know the truth of the matter one way or the other. Um, The story would have just laid there, but for the fact that there appears to have been an advertiser revolt, and it's kind of had a snowball effect. Over the course of the last two days, a number of major advertisers— um, including lots of the big auto companies, Hyundai, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, Mitsubishi, T. Rowe Price, um, Allstate Insurance. Um, a lot of these companies have announced that they are suspending their advertising buys on, on the O'Reilly factor while this all plays out. So the question becomes, how big a deal is this going to be? On our text line, I see where there's smoke, there's fire. Bill will survive, but his reputation will be forever tarnished. So 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text. Next line, you know, how does this play out? I, I will, I'll, I'll give you my take, and you're, you're free to agree or disagree. I think at the end of the day, this goes away unless the viewers revolt. Because, all right, it, it's one thing for advertisers to have a, a certain reaction. Okay, we're, we're going to take a step back. But, but here's the truth. Unless, as, as long as he continues to draw anything close to 4 million viewers, there will be advertisers that will want to buy time on his program. And my guess is that even these advertisers who have temporarily suspended you know, advertising buys. My guess is that's just a temporary thing while they take a step back and, and wait to see what happens? I mean, I think that's going to be the question. Okay, well, this is kind of controversial. You know, we th- these are these allegations out here. You know, we want to see if this is going to hurt his support long term. But if the ratings continue to be what they are, and he continues to draw anywhere near 4 million people, my guess is all these people who have suspended all these companies, that they, they will be back. Because at the end of the day, they're about you know, trying to, to get eyeballs. They're about trying to get people who watch their commercials and try to sell their products. And if that means that, you know, you've got 4 million people who are watching in any given night, they are going to advertise. So, and yes, might they get heat from some of the activists, but you know what? Those activists probably aren't going to buy a BMW anyways. So as long as O'Reilly continues to do well in his target audience, he's going to be fine. And Maybe I'm going to be proven to be wrong, but I do not see O'Reilly viewers abandoning him over this particular issue. Now, you can argue whether that's right or that's wrong, but I will tell you that there's a lot of other personalities on, on television who, 
in my opinion, have been equally as controversial, and viewers have not abandoned them. So unless there is a market drop-off in viewership, and I don't believe there will be, I think most of these advertisers are going to be back. And if they're not back, there's going to be other people who are going to be standing in line to advertise. Gloria in Palmyra. Gloria, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning. Well, my comment is that, yeah, it's up to the viewers. I think the viewers will continue to watch them. I think they'll support them. Mm -hmm. And I think the advertisers will go back to advertising on their um, own. Or other other advertisers will emerge who want to get their ads in front of 4 million people. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, too, you know, I was, for one, thinking of going to State Farm, but you know what? Maybe I'm not going to go to State Farm because they're going to follow the leader and be that way. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, they should be thinking for themselves. Well, that's always that's always the risk that these companies run is kind of a of a backlash, and we've seen that from like the boycotts and the boycott boycott things and things like that in Wisconsin, where some of the companies say, "Okay, we've decided it, it, it's too hot a potato to get involved in this," and then a lot of people just say, "Okay, fine. Well, if that's going to be your decision, we're we're not going to support you." Uh, exactly. are, are, are you a fan? Are you a fan of Bill O'Reilly? I am. Okay. So you, I mean, the, the, these allegations that maybe there was some sexual, there was sexual harassment and there were settlements, that's not going to cause you to not watch the show. That has nothing to do with his job. He's do, he does a great job. I think he tells the truth mm-hmm. the way that other networks do not even touch it. And I think that more people should watch the, you know, the Bill O'Reilly show. Good and, you know, it's, it's out there. All the truth is out there. And a lot of it is being suppressed by the media. So we just got to get the truth out there. And you can't, they're trying to shut down the people that are telling the truth, that's all. Okay, good enough. Thanks to call, Gloria. I mean, I might, as I was trying to analyze this, now obviously, if you're Fox News and you're Bill O'Reilly, nobody wants to go through this. I mean, this is, you know, okay, you, you've got all these advertisers pulling out, and I'm sure that there's high level meetings going on at Fox News right now about what do we do with it. My, my, I think my advice would be I'd ride this kind of, I I would ride it out because again that's going to be the ultimate question are are people going to are O'Reilly fans going to stop watching in droves because of these allegations and I think my sense is that the majority of people who watch the O'Reilly show the vast majority This is not going to be a disqualifier, and they're going to be exactly like, you know, Gloria was. They're going to be looking at this, and they're going to be saying, hey, um, you know, this is, we we like the show, and this is not going to cause us not to continue to watch him. And so, you know, if that's, if that ends up being the case, he's ultimately going to be fine. Now, if all of a sudden you have a sudden drop off and you go from 4 million viewers to, I, I don't know, 1 million viewers or whatever, that then becomes a different dynamic. I just don't see this right or wrong. You can agree or disagree as to whether it should happen, but if I try to look at the real-world situation, I don't see this as being the type of thing that's going to cause too many viewers to suddenly say, hey, I've liked Bill Riley. I've watched him for all these years. I'm not going to watch him now. I just don't think that's going to be how it plays out. Time will tell. It is 11.53. In a couple minutes, we're going to find out what Scafidi and Bill Stat have on their minds. Stick around.